This morning, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, I want us to look at the vision of David. This is maybe the most famous story in all of the Bible. Maybe the death and resurrection of Jesus probably comes in first, but certainly this is a famous story. This is David and Goliath. And it is worthy of that, worthy of all of the attention. Uh, as you read through the story, the of what happens in the story, the drama as it plays out for us, and that of course it is the classic little man over the big bully. But it's often, I think, uh, we come to a story like little guy and he had a big giant in front of him and if you and I have giant be this giant or the other if we'll just do a couple certain things and the preacher will try to make out what those couple things are your giants will fall too or maybe you've heard sermons on David and Goliath where it mentions David grabbing five smooth up against the giant and so the preacher will tell you and tell me five keys to a wonderful marriage. Five essentials in godly kids. Five this or five that. Necessarily, it's his five out of the text. We don't know. And preachers who do that often overlook that how many stones did it take David to fall Goliath? One. So what about the other four? I hope I'm on the right track with what I see in this text. And I hope it'll be a blessing to you. The big idea for me this morning was David's vision of God that formed the... We've got a lot to cover. So let's jump in. In chapter 17... Verse 1 and following, let's look first at the timidity of God's people. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. They are west of Bethlehem and some have noted that maybe this has a stadium type feel to it. On this side of the mountain are the Philistines, on this side of the mountain are the Israelites and the valley in between. And they can see each other and they will soon enough see the battle that will take place in the valley. Here comes the challenger. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Six cubits and a span is nine feet, nine inches tall. Now, most scholarship these days in light of the fact that the Septuagint the Greek translation of the Old Testament that came into being hundred BC. The finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in 1948 and a copy of 1 Samuel was in there. 
and the fact that Josephus, the first Josephus, the copy of 1 Samuel that we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and LXX, has it not as six cubits in a span, but as four cubits in a span. And most modern Hebrew scholars are going with four cubits in a span. That puts Goliath six foot, nine inches tall. Now, the archaeologists will tell us that your average Israelite at this time was five foot, three inches tall. Five foot three, six foot nine. I got a couple pictures I want to show you. Caleb, are you still back there? I can't see behind the... No, Frank, throw that first slide up there. Some of y'all might remember Paul Constantine. Paul used to be in our church. He was the assistant strength coach, as you can tell at Houston Baptist University. Paul was a great friend of many of us. He was a great friend of our family. We loved Paul. Paul was six foot two. Whenever you were around Paul, you just felt small. One night, Paul was over at our house having dinner and we're telling us about his brother. And he says, y'all think I'm big. He's bigger than me. We said, no way he's bigger than you. He said, look at this picture. Show us that one, Frank. Paul's brother is six foot nine. That's how tall. If this is four cubits in a span, brother is huge. Six foot nine. Now, if average Israelite was five foot three, that means. Now you think, how much is 18 inches? I'll show you of myself here. There's me. 14 inches tall is our friend Jared Carter. Some of y'all remember Jared here for just a few before he moved up to the Dallas area. Saved for Christ. He's 14, he's seven foot two, so he's 14 inches taller than I am. At six foot nine, Goliath is inches taller. Average. Champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits, four cubits, and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze, 125 pounds. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's 15 pounds. His shield carrier also walked before him. And so we get this mammoth of a man with all of his armor. See his great braggadocio. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. 
Again, the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When all Israel, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now we just saw chapter 16, verse 7 last week, didn't we? God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And here is Saul. If you remember from 1 Samuel chapter 9, Saul himself was a tall fellow, head and shoulders of all those in Israel. He was, if you will, a match for Goliath. Later, he had his own armor and his own weapons. But here is Saul. All of the army cowering in fear, dismayed and greatly afraid. And I just wonder if that can be me oftentimes, and if it might not be you oftentimes. That our life, rather than having a is rather marked by timidity and fear. Trembling at the to trust God and His Word and to obey Him. I got my notes out of order. I actually lost a page. Oh no, that's terrible. Let's see what I can do. Unbelievable. We tremble, fearful trials that come into our life. We get discouraged. Whatever it is that God may be calling us to, that life hands us, the providence hands us, and rather than face it with courage and face it with a sense of boldness, we are like Israel, dismayed and greatly. But verse 12, watch this. Now, David. That I like to make much of the but God verses in the New Testament. Or the but now. In Ephesians chapter 2, in your trespasses and in your sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world. You were by nature children of wrath even as the rest, but God. Into that mess, God brings His salvation. Or in Romans 1.18 all the way to 3.20 where He shows that nobody has any righteousness in and of themselves. And then in 3.21, but now. Jesus Christ. Here you have Goliath. His stature, all of his weaponry, and all of his braggadocio and cowering in the corner. Now David. The son of the Ephraimite of Bethlehem and Judah, whose name was Jesse. And Jesse had eight sons. Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle. 
And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the second, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. I think maybe we're meant to see David here as the youngest. His older brothers are off the battle. He's simply the servant going back and forth. Verse 17, David his son, take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. In fact, no, they're not. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper and took his supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in the battle array shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines and he spoke these same words. Those same words over in verse 8. Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The timidity and the cowardice. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he's coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with the great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Verse 26. It's going to start to get good. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? To note, these are the very first words of David in all the Bible. Word in chapter 16. He hasn't spoken a word. Chapter 17, of course, he did. But in terms of what the author is trying to relate to us, here are the very first words of David, the man after God's own heart. What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? But David introduces God into the picture when nobody else was. The people answered him in accord with his word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. He'll get the king's daughter, and his whole house, his father's house, will be free in Israel. Probably tax-free. They will be free from having to go to war. 
We have Goliath in all of his splendor, splendor, if you will. And we have the vast majority, Saul included, cowering in fear. Now David, the youngest, the mere servant, if you will, of his father and even of his brothers, And he's the one, when he sees what's going on and hears is the first to say, David will have to face the giant with a capital G. He has to face a couple giants, lowercase g. Verse 28. Now, Eliab, his oldest brother. How many of you all have an older brother? This is going to sound familiar right here. His oldest brother heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, his little brother. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart. For you've come down in order to see the battle. Here's older brother, brother David, and saying, You're nothing. Omniscient one who knows your heart. Remember little Kevin Arnold and older brother Wayne? Arnold getting on to little Kevin. Verse 29, but David said, what have I done now? Was it just not a question? To another and said the same thing. David turned and said, hey, what's to happen for the man who kills this guy? And the people answered the same thing as before. So he had to face Eliab, his older brother, contempt for him. David, you just sheep. And Eliab, in just a bit, will kind of do the same thing. For this fellow who's few stones. Verse 31, when the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul. And he said to him, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of Goliath. Your servant will go out and fight this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. So not only does he have to face Saul, who's saying, David, this is for one by people like you. You are but a youth, while this guy has been fighting from his youth. 
But David said to Saul, You're his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him, rescued it from his mouth, and when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard, struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Gene Edwards wrote a little book years ago called The Tale of Three Kings. It's about Saul, and it's about David, and it's about um, Absalom. I want to read to you just a couple of short pages here from chapter 1. The young family bears two distinctions. He is considered to be both spoiled and uninformed. Usually little is expected of him. Inevitably, he displays fewer characteristics of leadership than the other children in the family. As a child, he never leads. He only follows, for he has no one younger on whom to practice leadership. So it is today. And so it was 3,000 years ago in a village called Bethlehem and a family of eight boys. The first seven sons of Jesse worked near their father's farm. The youngest was sent on treks into the mountains to graze the family's small flock of sheep. On those pastoral jaunts, this youngest son always carried two things, a sling and a small guitar-like instrument. Spare time is abundant on rich mountain plateaus where sheep can graze for days in one sequestered meadow. But as time passed and days became weeks, the young man became very lonely. The feeling of friendlessness that always roamed inside him was magnified. He often cried. He also played his harp a great deal. He had a good voice, so he often sang. When these activities failed to comfort him, he gathered up a pile of stones, one by one, swung them at a distant tree with something akin to fury. When one rock pile was depleted, he would walk to the blistered tree, reassemble his rocks, and designate another leafy enemy at yet, another, at yet a farther distance. He engaged in many such solitary battles. This shepherd, singer, slinger also loved his Lord. At night when all the sheep lay sleeping and he sat staring at the dying fire, he would strum upon his harp and break into quiet song. He sang the ancient hymns of his forefathers' faith. While he sang, he wept. And while weeping, he often broke out in abandoned praise until the mountains in distant places lifted up his praise and tears and passed them on to higher mountains until they eventually reached the ears of God. When the young shepherd did not praise and when he did not cry, he tended to each and every sheep and lamb. When not occupied with his flock, he swung his companionable sling and swung it again and again until he could tell every rock precisely where to go. Once while singing his, lungs out, singing his lungs out to God, angels, sheep, and passing clouds, he spied a living enemy, a huge bear. He lunged forward. Both found themselves moving furiously toward the small object, a lamb feeding at a table of rich green grass. Youth and bear stopped halfway and whirled to face one another. Even as he instinctively reached into his pocket for a stone, the young man realized, why, I'm not afraid. 
Meanwhile, brown, li- brown lightning on mighty, furry legs charged at the shepherd with foaming madness. Impelled by the strength of the youth, the young man married rock to leather, and soon a brook-smooth pebble whined through the air to meet that charge. A few moments later, the man, not quite so young as a moment before, picked up the little lamb and said, I am your shepherd, and God is mine. So long into the night, over the day's saga into a song. He hurled that hymn to the skies again and again until he had taught the melody and words to every angel that had ears. They in turn became custodians of this wondrous song and passed on as healing balm to brokenhearted men and women in every age to come. Of course, he has in mind Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, and even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. and experienced. It says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And so, to see the vision of David. It's not that David big God full of courage in and of himself. It was that he had a vision of a living God and that gave him courage. He had a great memory of God's faithfulness in the past and it gave faith of God's faithfulness in the present. The Lord who delivered me, He will deliver me. Saul Go, and may the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed them with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I've ripped them off. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag which he had, even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So here we go. The Philistine, watch, we're going to see that phrase, the Philistine, the Philistine, the Philistine, the Philistine, the Philistine. The Philistine came on and approached David with a shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. He's just a young, pretty boy. Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. This fellow could talk some smack. Whatever we think of David, this boy could smack talk with some smack talk. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a 
spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. Yeah, man. I'm going to do God is going to do this to you. Going to deliver. The battle is the Lord's. He is not concerned with your sword, or your spear, your javelin, or your height, or your memory. He he could care less about your braggadocio. He doesn't look at external appearances. Then it happened. When the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. Now, back to our stadium. Can you imagine what's going on in the hearts of all of the Israelites as they are watching this happen? Goliath, David talks his smack, and here comes Goliath, and there goes David. Right into the teeth of this battle. David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Now, in this little story, the author mentioned a pebble. These ancient slingers, the archaeologists tell us, would find rocks two inches big. There's a billiard ball. That's not even two inches wide. It may be close. And these ancient slingers were really really good at this. You heard in the little story of while he's out pasturing his flock and he gets a little bored. I guess it's time for some target practice. What are you going to do if you, if you don't have a cell phone to look at Facebook all day? You're going to take rocks and you're going to sling them and sling them and sling them. Listen, you can go on YouTube because I did. And you can look at modern guys like you and me who with a little bit of practice can get pretty good at this. Taking one of these slings, a part of it you would hook to your finger, it would go down, have some leather at the bottom that you would put that rock into, and the other sling, the other piece would come up into your hand and you would sling and let go. And of course that part would hold on and shoo. Guys like you and me with a bit of practice can get okay at it. Imagine a guy like David hour after hour after hour. It is said in Judges chapter 20, it's talking about the Benjamites. Out of all these people, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone at a hair 
and not miss. That's what it says in Judges chapter 20, that these guys, they were left-handed. They could sling it at a hail. Now, some of the guys I read this week said that these ancient slingers could get good enough not only to hit you in the face, but to choose where to you on the face. And so you read a story like this and you go, did he hit him in the forehead and he go down? Depends on who you read. The lowest speed that I saw was 60 miles an hour that that rock was flying. Imagine that sucker coming 60, 70, 75 miles an hour and hitting you right between the eyes. Now, that's not what killed him. But you can imagine what it did to him. He fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. Now, that's a summary verse, and now he's about to tell us exactly how this happened. Again, Goliath is mammoth in size. He's got all of this armor. He comes with all of these weapons. He's got all of this braggadocio. All David has is a and his stones and a great God. And the author reminds us, David didn't even have a sword in his hand. He hits him between the eyes with this rock. Goliath falls. And now I think maybe the best part of the story, he's going to go take Goliath's own sword to finish the deal. Verse 51, Then David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him, cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now this doesn't tell us, but you can go online and you can look at some of the historic artwork on David and Goliath. And some of them have David stand over Goliath holding up his head. And you can imagine when he did that, what all of Israel did. Yeah! And what all the Philistines did. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley into the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Sharim, even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. Then David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tents. So he, he stole all Goliath's weapons, and he took his head with him back to Jerusalem. Now when Saul, Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this man? Abner said, by your life, O king, I don't know. The king said, inquire whose son this youth is. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. I don't know. I, read, I wanted to read that to you. Not only did he take Goliath's head and take it home with him, but then when he got called before King Saul, he brought his head with him. And you can look at some of the artwork. Some have just holding him by the hair. Others have it wrapped up in some sort of cloth. Who knows? 
But king, here's your prize, you know. What did David see? This vision of God is a word that I keep using. David was bold, not timid, not cowardly, but bold and courageous. And it wasn't because he had any true grit within himself, but it was because he had a vision of a living God. When all Israel is cowering and maybe, if you will, in the corner sucking their thumb, David sees God. And he sees this one taunting the armies of the living God. And he recollects on God's faithfulness to him in the past and he just knows that God will be faithful to him now. God did not deliver him through the instruments of human power, but through the weakness of his servant. Goliath comes with sword, spear, javelin. But before the day is over, he'll find that God does not deliver through such. David came with a sling and a stone, no sword in his hand. God gave the victory, but he gave victory through what the world regards as weakness. From Dale Ralph Davis. We're not to read this and think what a mighty man David was. We're meant to look at in, in all of his weakness what a mighty God he had. The Bible says that the righteous are as bold as lions. The Apostle Paul said that God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and sound mind. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. We sometimes sing, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and He intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of God? Will distress or persecution or famine or peril or sword? As it is written, all day long we are being delivered over as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor principalities, height, depth, something, 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 nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The posture of David 
seemed to be a posture of boldness, courage, stand tall, no retreat, move forward. Not one of fear and cowardice. Not one of timidity. But not looking to himself, but looking to a great God. It became the bedrock of his boldness. We have all kinds of reason to be fearful and timid and cowardly. God's call upon our life to trust Him and obey can be very, very scary. God's call upon our lives to live on mission with Jesus, the Great Commission, can be very, very intimidating. Whenever trials come our way, those can lead us to be very, very fearful. The prospect of death sometimes can get the best of us emotionally. Heck, our sin, if not thought rightly about, can lead us to fear. But God is with us as we live on mission with Him. And we are in His hands as we go through trials. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even death. And even in our repentance and in our sin, He will hear us. And if we confess our sin, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins. Our God is great. Our God is the living God. And He's the mighty God. Because of it, as David, so too can we stand tall. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. If you've never read Knowing God, oh, you've got to read this. Chapter 2 is about the people who know their God. And it begins briefly by talking about the difference between the knowledge about God and the knowledge of God. And he says that we can know a lot about God and yet not really know Him. And we can even, he says, know a lot about godliness and yet not know Him. And then he goes on to talk about four things about the people who know their God. Number one, he says, that the people who know their God have great energy for God. They know Him. They have a vision of Him as the living Creator of all things who created them and who redeemed them through His Son, Jesus Christ, who empowers them by His Holy Spirit. And, and they have great energy for Him. They know Him who He is and what He's done and the promises that He has made to them. And so they go for it. They have great energy for God. Number two, they have great thoughts of God, He said. God to them is not just, you know, grand happy in the sky. He's not Santa Claus that we go to for gifts. He's not the great ooh, Coke machine where you pop in your money and push what you want and out it pops. No. He's the Lord of Lords. 
He's the King of kings. He's the great and the awesome and the mighty God. Those who know their God have great energy for God. They have great thoughts of God. They have great contentment in God. And then finally, he says, they have great boldness for God. Bold. Courageous. There's a posture about them. You know, the deal about David. David was saying he's too big to miss. God is with me. God is with us. I see Miss Terry Drenth over there. She posted on Facebook. I believe this morning. Worry is a conversation you have with yourself about things you cannot change. Prayer is a conversation you have with God about things He can change. Worry is a conversation you have with yourself. It's, it's all down here. Prayer is up here. It's a vision of a great and a mighty God who has committed himself to his people to never leave us nor forsake us and to be with us in our trials and to be with us through death and to be with us at all times in all things. The bedrock of boldness isn't found in yourself. It's found in God. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the living God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we saw in your word last week, you are not so much concerned at all with the externals. You look at the heart. This morning it seems to me that what was so striking about David was that he brought you into the equation. And everybody else was cowering looking at Goliath and looking at themselves, fearful and dismayed. Only David lifted his eyes and theirs to the greatness of the living God. What a difference that kind of vision makes. In our trials. In the difficult things you call us to. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. May we all here at Redeemer be men and women who seek you through your word and through prayer and through worship and the fellowship with the saints that we might know you, that our vision of you would grow and grow and grow. And that because of it, we would be bold, courageous, stand tall, because our God is great. And for any friends here today, Lord, who 
do not know the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. He came as the greater David and defeated the great giant of sin. He took upon himself the sins of his people and defeated sin, defeated Satan, defeated hell for all who will trust in him. God, might you open their eyes to the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ even right now. And we'll pray this in his name. Amen.